You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. How you doing, Revolution Church? I'll take it. I'll take it. Good. Who said very good? Is that Chris? Uh, Brandon? Yeah, it's you. I saw you. I appreciate that. So as you can see, uh, this will probably never happen again. I'm wearing a white t-shirt today, so this is kind of strange for me. Um, I was told that I look really out of place. I don't know if that is, but I'm really self-conscious. So I just want to like give a huge thank you for, to the person who told me I look really strange in a white shirt. I know I was going to have to get up in front of about 80 people, so thank you very much for that. Um, so there's that. Just, this has nothing to do with the sermon. I had the strangest dream last night that, um, that like I couldn't find my iPad and like a bunch of other stuff before like the sermon. Uh, so like I get up here and I try to talk for like 10 minutes. And then next thing I know, I kid you not, Anna Witt like pushes me out of the way, takes the mic from me and starts counting off the, like the worship song that they're going to play. Like, she's like, yeah, dude, you're done. Like, <laughs> like you've been like stumbling and bumbling around. Like we're not listening to you anymore. And she took my mic from me. So I've been like kind of paranoid, like making sure I didn't lose my iPad and kind of keep my eye on Anna, uh, <laughs> time since before church started. Um, it has nothing to do with the sermon. I just thought you all would find that amusing. Um, so, uh, this is like the last two weeks that we are in uh, the book of Acts. If you're a college student and this is your first time here, welcome to Revolution. And if you're a college student coming back, we're glad you came back. Um, but we've been studying Acts this summer. We decided to do 16 weeks to the book of Acts. Um, and, and we named this series The People of God, right? In, in reference to the early church and, and the church today. Uh, capital C Church, Worldwide Body of Christ, all those who believe in Jesus and, and trust in Him for their salvation. Um, and what we've been doing is we've been looking at the first century church, right, the, the, the OG, right, the original church, and seeing what we can learn from it, um, or what we can learn from her, right? Uh, how, like, what did the early church think? How did they live? Uh, what were their priorities? What did they believe? Where did they go? What, you know, just all that kind of stuff. What were they all about? And then what we've been trying to do is um, learn from their ungodly mistakes and, and kind of shy away from those and then try to apply their godly examples to our lives. Um, so this evening, in light of that, um, we're going to be looking at, a, at an example in Acts chapter 21, and, and we're going to be looking at an example from the Apostle Paul's life. Um, if you don't know much about Paul, Paul was a dude who was completely sold out for the cause of Christ. Um, Paul was beaten multiple times. He was jailed multiple times. He was shipwrecked uh, a few times. He, uh, his whole life, ever since he came to know Christ, it was like within just like a, a very short time, people were, we were trying to kill him. Um, and he would not turn back from Jesus. He kept going forward no, no matter what, and he actually... He was so devoted to Jesus um, that he actually died for the faith. Um, he actually died proclaiming the gospel. Um, he, he was, as far as we can tell, according to church history, he was beheaded um, in Rome for the gospel. So this guy is a dude who was like all in, right? Like chips into the middle of the table. I'm holding nothing back. Uh, I'm all in it for Christ. So what I want us to do is I want us to try to get inside Paul's head and see why he was so devoted to Jesus that he would be willing to suffer and die. Because um, that's pretty bold, right? That's like a sold-out devotion. Right, so, so what pushed Paul to this supernatural level of obedience and commitment to Jesus? That's the question that I want us to consider this evening. Um, but before we hop into this, I'll, I'll be as honest as I can. Uh, I think that this sermon um, is going to be heavy hitting for a lot of us. And like, that, that wasn't my intention whenever I was writing this thing out, right? It wasn't like, oh yeah, like college students are coming in, just punch them right in the face with this one. That wasn't my intention. Um, but I think that this is going to be heavy in, in, in certain parts because there are going to be some things um, that are kind of tough for us to hear that are unpopular um, that you, you kind of won't hear from, like, uh, television preachers. If, you, if you're new to revolution, I hate televangelism. Oh, Lord, help me. Um, right, uh, yeah, welcome to Rev. Uh, but, like, I, I hope um, that everyone here is going to be as convicted as I was this week studying for this. Um, I always joke and say, like, there are seven days in a week because a pastor has to take six days' worth of a beating before he can preach the sermon with any kind of conviction. Um, so I hope that you guys are as convicted as I was. But, but beyond that, um, I, I want us to listen to the Holy Spirit as he convicts us of where we're falling short, as he shows us what we ought to be doing, um, and then become people who are radically devoted to following Jesus no matter where he leads us. No matter what he calls us to do, and no matter what the sacrifice needed to accomplish whatever it is that he's calling us to. That's the kind of people that I want us to be. Um, that's my prayer for this church. 
Um, but without any more by way of introduction, we are in Acts chapter 21, verses 7 through 14. Um, if you're new here, there are blue Bibles in the backs of those pews. That is our gift to you, uh, but if you're like me and you would prefer to read it on the projector, it's going to be up there as well. Um, but take those Bibles home. It's real easy. It's called the New Living Translation, incredibly easy translation to read. Uh, let's see what Luke writes in Acts 21. The next stop after leaving Tyre was Ptolemy, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed for one day. The next day we went on to Caesarea and stayed at the home of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven men who had been chosen to distribute food. He had four unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophecy. Several days later, a man named Agabus, who also had the gift of prophecy, arrived from Judea. He came over, took Paul's belt, and bound his own feet and hands with it. Then he said, The Holy Spirit declares, So shall the owner of this belt be bound by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the local believers all begged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But he, Paul, but he said, Why all this weeping? You are breaking my heart. I am ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. When it was clear that we couldn't persuade him, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Let's take a second and pray. Father, please, through the working of your Holy Spirit, working alongside your word, the things that you've declared that we need to know in your scripture, um, God, please turn us in to people like that. that we would be willing to sell all for the gospel, that we would be willing to die if necessary for the, for the glory of Jesus Christ. God, I'm not asking you to make us like Paul. I'm asking you to make us like your son who died for your glory. God, but in all the ways that Paul imitated Jesus, God, please make us like that. Make us like Christ. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts to cause us to see. Because if you don't do that, then everything that I'm saying is in vain. Father, work your will. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, to kind of get a little bit of context, because I know I don't like to drop you guys in on like stories midway through, and I kind of did that, right? It starts out, when we were going from Tyre to Ptolemy, right? So you have no idea what what we're talking about unless you've really been reading Acts lately. Um, Here's what's going down. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is headed for Jerusalem, right? And then he's heading on to Rome after that. That's his plan. In, In Acts 19... Uh, chapter 19, verse 21, Paul says that, like, it says, like, Paul felt constrained, or, or not constrained, compelled by the Holy Spirit to go on to Jerusalem and then go on to Rome. So this is, this is Paul's plan. And Paul makes some stops along the way from where he was at. It's a pretty decent journey. Um, but nevertheless, the whole time, he's not, like, dilly-dallying or, or being idle with his time or anything. Um, he just, he's progressively going on towards Jerusalem each time, making stops. Um, and what I thought was really interesting it, um, when studying for this, is Paul, said, well, we're going to read something that he says. He doesn't know what is going to happen in Jerusalem, except that he is going to proclaim Christ and obey Christ and suffer. Right? He says this in Acts chapter 20. He says, And now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me, except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. So, so Paul here, is, I, I thought that, that was just astounding to me. And we're going to go back to that here in a little while. Just that, that, that last bit. So Paul doesn't know what's going to happen except I'm, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to jail, but I'm going to tell people the gospel. All right? So that's, that's all Paul knows is on the agenda here. Like it's going to be real rough, but we're going to proclaim Christ. Um, so as Paul's heading to Jerusalem, he ends up at Philip's house in Caesarea. Uh, this, is not, um, this is not a, a disciple or even necessarily an apostle. This is a different kind of Philip. Um, this is the Philip from, uh, you guys heard of the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, Acts chapter 8, right? Like, how, how, like, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, like, how can I unless someone teaches me? And then Philip, like, tells him the gospel from the book of Isaiah. That's the same Philip. He was also the same Philip who was named as a deacon, in Acts chapter 6, I believe. He's one of the seven deacons that the, that the church originally chose. So you could call him the OD. 
Oh, yeah, that's like your lame preacher joke of the evening, right? I'm, I got a lot of them that don't even... That was intentional, but not all of them are intentional. I'm an embarrassment to my wife. Uh, anyway, <laughs> right, so he goes to that Philip's house, right? It's like, it's like 20 years after we saw Philip with the Ethiopian. Um, and they're in Caesarea. It's like 62 miles outside of Jerusalem. So he's, again, heading on towards Jerusalem, marching forward. And while they're there, they're there for quite a few days. And um, Agabus, a prophet, shows up. Um, and he's a known prophet. He prophesied a famine that was going to happen in Acts chapter 11, and it came to pass. So, like, this dude's legit. He's truly being informed things by the Holy Spirit. And he prophesies by the Holy Spirit that Paul is going to be in chains, and he's going to be given to the Romans. Um, things are not going to go well for Paul. He's going to suffer, just like the Holy Spirit had told Paul personally in every city. Agabus comes and confirms that. He gives a little visual aid with tying his own hands together with Paul's belt. And all the believers beg Paul not to go. Like, they weep for him. They plead. And I can can imagine the kind of things that they were saying to Paul is, like, dude, this is not worth it. Like, surely God has something. Like, surely God has a wonderful plan for your life that does not involve going to Jerusalem and and being beaten and jailed and possibly dying, right? Like, be safe, Paul. This is a fool's errand. You need to be smart. Don't go to Jerusalem. Be comfortable and live. I can imagine that they're saying things along those lines. And what Paul does is is kind of funny. He gently rebukes them. Right, I know our, our translation we read out of the NLT says, what are you doing crying? You're breaking my heart. Um, a better translation is, what are you doing trying to break my heart? And, and what he means by that is, like, he, he rebukes them saying, like, quit trying to break down my resolve. Right? I'm going to Jerusalem. Stop, stop trying to keep me from going to Jerusalem. And then he proclaims that he's willing even to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul is willing to follow in Jesus Christ's footsteps at Jerusalem as well, to be arrested by the, the Jewish leaders and handed over to the Gentiles to die. So he's saying, I'm, I'm ready for that. And Paul would not be persuaded any other way. So then the believers commit Paul's life to the Lord's will. I'm, I'm, I like to recap stuff just so that we can highlight a few things and kind of get a good sense of what exactly is going on. Usually that helps to, to retell those kinds of things. Um, so Paul's ready to die. You can't persuade him any other way. He loves Jesus. And he's known for a long time that he's going to suffer in Jerusalem. And he still goes. That's, that's, that's incredible. Um, but anyway, th- this, this text um, got me thinking about a few things. Um, and and this, is the, this is the first one. I just, I just want to point this out because it, it's kind of easy to, to gloss over, and I almost did at first. Often, like, whenever we think about Jesus, or whenever we think about what it means to be a Christian, and I'm guilty of this too, often we will focus on only the blessings that come with it, right? Because there are like legitimate blessings that come with being a, a Christian, right? Like you have the companionship of the Holy Spirit, right? Jesus says it's better for him to ascend to heaven, um, to the right hand of the Father, so that he can send the Comforter to us, right? That's a reference to the Holy Spirit. So if we're, if we're a Christian, if, you're, if your faith is in Christ, we have this companionship that no one can take from us. Right? We always have the Holy Spirit with us to comfort us no matter what happens. Um, we have forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus. That, that God has taken the record of our wrong and taken our debt and nailed it to a cross. And He no longer counts us as guilty sinners, but He counts us as sons and daughters of Him. Right? That's beautiful. Uh, we, have, we have eternal life promised us. That blessing, right? We will never have to suffer in hell ever. We will live forever um, in the presence of God, in the presence of perfection. Um, we have this promise of church family. Right, that the church that we're a part of now, the body of Christ, is supposed to look out for one another and love one another. That's a great blessing given to us. Like God's guidance over our lives. Right? That we have the scriptures that He's going to illuminate to us through the working of the Holy Spirit so that we can understand and know how to live and be comforted, right? God's guidance given to us through the scriptures. All these things are awesome. And I'm what with what I'm getting ready to say, I'm not trying to do away with any of those things. That is awesome. Um, but so, some people though. And these are the kind of like TBN, like Daystar, those kinds of stuff you can see on television. Um, Some people focus on the blessings of Christ so much um, that they actually turn into heretics, right? They turn into false teachers, and they take Scripture out of context, and they begin to say things like, being a Christian will result in a good life, right? Like an easy life. Being, like knowing Jesus, following Jesus will result in a good life. Or it will result in health. That like God will keep you from getting sick. Um, that God will keep your family members from dying, that it will result in, in a life of wealth and prosperity, right? That, like, everything you touch is just going to turn to gold, right? That, like, through Jesus Christ, you have the Midas touch, uh, right? Or, like, 
promise you physical healing. That like, sure, God, like, God may give you cancer, but like, if you just have enough faith, God promises to heal you of every kind of like, malady that you might have. Right? Some people focus on the blessings of Christ. I'm talking about the prosperity gospel, if you didn't get what I was getting at. Um, they focus on the blessing of Christ so much that they begin to say things that just aren't true. And I think that this passage is a phenomenal reminder to us, right, that that stuff is just false. Right, this, this passage here, is, is, it stands in stark contrast against things like the prosperity gospel and just prove that it's not true. Right? Because physical, temporal, earthly blessings, like those kinds of things that we talked about, those are like literally never promised to a Christian. Ever. Right? Like I will wear white shirts for the rest of my life if you can show me that I'm wrong. Right? And just laying that out there, it's not in there. Literally never promised to a believer. Right? Point in case, did Paul ever get any of those things? Did Paul ever get health, wealth, prosperity, an easy life? Did he have a million friends and everything he touched was awesome? No, right? Paul was, again, imprisoned. He was beaten. Everyone hated him. The Jews wanted him dead. The Romans wanted him dead. His life did not go well for him. As far as this this worldly life is concerned, and I'm comfortable saying that Paul was one of the three godliest men that's ever lived. More godly than me. How can I expect to have a better life than Paul did? He was an apostle, right? So again, this passage just stands in contract and just shows how stupid that that kind of thinking is, that following Je- follow Jesus and everything will go well while you're still on earth. That's, that's foolishness. But what I want us to do is instead of thinking those kinds of things, let's, let's see what Jesus said to expect if we follow him. All right, I'm just going to read all these passages. I got, I got three. I want to read them real quick. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. So Jesus is saying, anticipate these things because you are my followers. He doesn't say if these things. He says when people mock you, when they persecute you. This is not maybe. This is if you're a follower of Jesus, these things, expect them because they will happen if you actually follow Jesus. Matthew chapter 10, he says, And all nations will hate you because you are my followers, but everyone who endures to the end will be saved. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 27 and verse 33, Jesus says, that, or says, And a large crowd was following Jesus. And he turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, meaning if you want to be my follower, if you want to be a Christian, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father, and mother, your wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, so you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. He's not telling you to hate your spouse or hate your kids or your parents, by the way. He's saying, you have to love me so much more than anything else that it looks like hate for what you would have for your wife or your children or your parents or your family, that your love for Jesus so outshines your love for them that it would appear by comparison to be hate. So looking at all that stuff, what Jesus is saying is be prepared to suffer. You want to follow me? Are you ready to be hated? Are you ready to be persecuted? Are you ready to be forsaken by the world? Because you better count the cost. You better sit down and do the math. Am I worth it? Because these things are going to come. I like to note this too. Jesus does not try to make it easy for people to become his disciples. He says, hey, salvation is easy. Believe, trust me, follow me. But should you choose to do that? Right? I've, like he's saying, like, I've done all the work for you. You don't have to work for your salvation. You just trust me that I've, I've accomplished your salvation. But are you ready for what the, like the rest of your life is going to hold for you? Because salvation, that's, that's already done. But everything else is going to be very hard. He does not make it easy for us to become his disciples. He paints the worst picture ever. I like to always note that Jesus never says that the life of discipleship will be easy. But he does say it will be fulfilling. He says you will know God fully. You will be a child of God. You will be at peace with God. God will no longer hold your sin over your head anymore. And the punishment that you deserve will not come to you because Jesus has taken. He said you will actually know God as your father now. Your life will be full. He says that not only will your life be fulfilling, but that even though discipleship is hard, Jesus says it is worth it. Because you'll be 
with me forever. You will have eternal life. You'll have life forever in the life after this one. And you'll have life as it was actually meant to be experienced here in communion with God. Being at peace with God. So it'll be fulfilling and worth it, but it won't be easy. If you're wondering why I skipped a passage in Luke that's pretty important um, about discipleship, Jesus, I want to go to it now. Jesus actually says this. So this is another hard thing. He says one of the, Jesus says a lot of really hard stuff, right? He's not like the hippie, like Birkenstock wearing dude from San Francisco that like we like to think Jesus is. Like he says a lot of really hardcore stuff. Um, he actually says that we must die daily in order to follow Jesus. Right? We must die daily. Luke uh, chapter nine verses twenty three through twenty five says, "Then Jesus said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me." If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed? Right, and, and, and I just want to lay this before you. We've heard those things, right? I think like, was it Toby Mac? Right? Yeah, he has a song like, I don't want to gain the whole world. Lose my soul. Right, so like we hear that and it becomes a cliche. Don't let those words that we just read, that you, you must be willing to die daily, take up your cross Follow me, turn from your selfish ways, give up your life in order to gain life. Don't let those words from the Lord Jesus roll off your back because you've heard them before, because I do understand. I have a tendency to do that. Be like, yeah, dude, I know that, right? Like, it's cool. I I totally understand. Die, die to yourself, take up your cross, all that stuff. Don't take this lightly. I understand we've turned it into a cliche, but it is not a cliche when the Lord Jesus says it. He wasn't kidding. This is actually what it takes to follow him. Are you prepared to die? Whenever he says, die daily, and other translations say that, whenever it says die daily, what that means is everything is always about what God wants. It's always what God wants, not what we want for us. Right? It's always what pleases the Lord, not what pleases me. Right? So the best way I can distill that down is it's, it's this kind of a thought to die daily. God is better. Knowing him, being in close communion and fellowship with him is better than what I want. Knowing him is better than money. Knowing him is better than um, sleeping with my girlfriend. Knowing him and being in close communion with him is better than me holding in bitterness towards somebody. Right? He is always better than what I want to do. His ways are always wiser than mine. So I want to walk in his ways. He knows best. So I need not disagree with him in my mind and be frustrated whenever life doesn't go how I plan because he knows best and he's the one who's sovereign and in control. He knows what I need. Right? Dying daily means I live to glorify Jesus and Jesus alone and not my own selfish desires. And here's what I found to be really interesting. Naturally, right? And just for the record, nat- like, just because something's natural doesn't mean it's Okay. <laughs> Right? Um, Because naturally we're born sinners, right? Like born children of wrath under God's condemnation because we're sinners, right? So naturally we don't want to live in that kind of a way that Jesus says we're going to have to. I don't know about you guys, like, like the like just on its face like the prospect of dying daily and like yeah like my will doesn't matter anymore it's all about subjecting myself to the lord jesus like that that sounds like it's going to suck pretty bad right like we can be honest here like we try to be pretty transparent at rev um why is that because we want to do as we see fit always like, that's the human nature. Like, look at Adam and Eve. God says, hey, don't eat this fruit. And they're like, oh, I'm eating that. Right? Like, we, we want to do what we want to do all the time. We want to do our own thing. We want to be as comfortable as we can. We don't want to deny ourselves. We don't want to take up any kind of a cross, whether metaphorical or, or literal. We don't want to do that. Right? What would make us desire to deny ourselves and follow Jesus? What would make us want to deny ourselves and be willing to die daily? Because right, dying hurts, and that's not going to come naturally to us. This is the biblical answer. This is what makes us desire Jesus, even though all those hardships are promised to us. Right? The Bible teaches us the, that the Holy Spirit, or the third, third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see and hearts to understand the transcendent holiness of God. And at the same time, the Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see and a heart to understand. 
He allows us to see our finite, lowly wickedness. And I totally understand that I used a couple of $5 words in there, right? So, like, you're, you're not alone, right? Yeah, I'm doing word of the day stuff with the dictionary, right? So we're learning this stuff together. Um, whenever I say that the Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see and hearts to understand the transcendent holiness of God and also our finite, lowly wickedness, what I mean by that is that the Holy Spirit, we're, we're blind. We're dead from birth, right? Spiritually speaking, we do not want the things of God. There's nothing in us. The Bible says none seek after God. We don't naturally want him in the least. And the Holy Spirit causes us to come alive and see the vastness of God, to see that he is huge, that he is utterly supreme to everything, right? That's what I mean by transcendent. He is is other, right? He is wholly unlike us, And not only that, but he's righteous. He's holy. He will not tolerate sin. He despises sin. And then whenever I say that he, that that the Holy Spirit shows us our lowly, finite wickedness, what I mean by that is that the Holy Spirit shows us, in contrast to this God who despises sin, he shows us how wicked that we are. He shows us that we are sinners who have disobeyed this God, and God's justice demands that we suffer in hell for eternity. Like, we don't naturally believe those things, right? Or like, we might believe those things on paper, right? Or like, in our head, like mentally assent to those things. But those truths don't begin to hit us in the heart until the Holy Spirit causes that to happen. That's what we call conviction, right? I need a Savior. I'm wicked. God must be a just, good God. I must have punishment coming my way. We don't naturally see things that way, but the Holy Spirit caused us to see those things, and then we hear and believe the gospel, right? That this big, holy God who is holy holy and nothing like us, he condescends, right? He He comes down to become one of us in the person of Jesus in order to save us by taking judgment in our place, right? As a substitute, suffering the wrath of God in our place that we deserved, That's this gospel that we believed. Big, holy God, sinners deserving hell, Jesus in my place for my sin. Jesus redeemed us. So I understand a lot of you are Christians. A lot of you have heard me say this a million times, say that exact same story every time, but it bears repeating, and I'll never apologize for it. But Jesus redeemed us. That's some of the language that the Bible uses for what Jesus did on the cross, which means this, he bought us with his blood on the cross. He bought us back from sin to free us from the power of sin and he bought us back from his own wrath. So Jesus actually saved us from himself because a just God requires that sin be punished and Jesus says, I will go in their place. I will take their punishment for them. So we believe then through the work of the Holy Spirit that we have been bought by God. And we don't... We, like, that's, like, some terminology that, like, at least with, like, the, the younger crowd that I'm totally a part of. I'm not trying to act like I'm, like, 60 years old. Um, that, like, we, we don't tend to think that way, right? Because, again, it's become a cliche. I've been bought, bought by the blood of Jesus. That's a cliche in, 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 like, Western Christianity. But, like, legitimately, that is a biblical thought that we don't think about enough. We have been, we believe that we have been bought by God for God. This is awesome. So now because we have been redeemed or we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus because we believe the gospel, we are no longer our own. We believe this. We believe that we are no longer our own. And we begin to proclaim this, both with our mouths and with how we live our lives. We begin to proclaim this truth. Jesus is Lord. Right? What I think is really cool... Jesus is Lord, you've probably seen it written across like banners. They usually hang from like a cross or like church flags and stuff like that. Jesus is Lord, uh, biblically speaking, is the first confession of the church. I thought that was really cool to, to, to find out this week. Just those three words, Jesus is Lord. That was like the first creed of Christianity, right? The Bible tells us that trusting and believing in that, that Jesus Christ is Lord, saves And so what do we mean by Lord then? Because this is fairly important. If this is what people who understand that they've been bought by the blood of Christ, that we would proclaim that he is Lord, what does that mean? It means he is king. He is, it's it's used like a few thousand times or something like that. I might be getting my numbers off. I remember studying it. It It was a huge number. In the New Testament, right? The word's kyrios, right? It's used all over the New Testament. Lord, it means king. It means owner, 
master, sovereign, which means like you're the one in charge and you do as you see fit and no one can tell you not to and everyone's subject to you. It means redeemer, right? one who owns. So what are we saying whenever we proclaim Jesus is Lord? We're saying Jesus is my master. Jesus has bought me. He has saved me. I am not my own anymore. I am his. Everything is about him now. I am his subject. But this concept of Jesus being Lord, right? Jesus is Lord. This really makes us consider um, this doctrine that's called the Lordship of Christ, right? And we're not going to spend a a ton of time here, um, but this is really important that we get. If I could distill down the Lordship of Christ, it's, it's this. Jesus is king. I do as he commands. Pretty simple. Jesus Christ is Lord. I am not. Whatever he wants. And the thing is, and here's what's beautiful about Christianity. We are free to live that way because we're not trying to do it to save ourselves. It's not all I have to live as if Jesus is Lord um, in order to gain my salvation. It's no, because Jesus has already bought me and is my redeemer, he owns me now. Right? So it's beautiful. So we don't, we don't live as if he is the king and I, and I do as he commands. We don't do that to save ourselves. We do that out of a heart of gratitude for what he's already done. Right? We're just living in gratitude. That's what the Christian life is. And, and believing and living as if Jesus is Lord is the mark of genuine saving faith. Jesus Christ says, if you love me, obey my commandments. If you love me, live as if I'm Lord. Right? So if, you, if someone's not living as if Jesus is their king, and that's the habitual pattern of their life, then they prove that they don't love Jesus. And how can you not love Jesus if you truly have faith and truly believe that he has bought you back from his own wrath? You see how it all works together. The lordship of Christ in our lives is the mark of genuine salvation. It's the mark of genuine faith. So since Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God the Father and given all authority and he rules over all things, then his people, those who have been redeemed and saved by him, we adopt this attitude. I am his subject and I serve at the pleasure of a king, of the king. I am his subject. That was Paul's attitude, right? And I'm not, I'm not making like a deduction here. Like he actually says that. <laughs> like Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, he calls him, he says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, <laughs> right? So he actually views himself as if he doesn't own himself, that he actually has a master. He has a Lord. That's why Paul was willing to go to Jerusalem and be imprisoned and die if necessary, Paul truly lived his life and truly believed, I live for the king, no matter what the cost, no matter what he asks me to do. Paul counted his life, I said we come back to this, Paul counts his life as worthless if he does not do as Christ commands. He says, but my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus. He said, everything is vain. Everything that I am is worthless if I do not obey the Lord, Jesus. So the mentality of a genuine genuine believer is, is this. I will do whatever is necessary to bring glory to the name of Jesus. I will glorify God in my life. There is no turning back for me. I have decided to follow Jesus. Come what may, I will bring him honor. Now, this is truth. Right? And I'm not saying that like pat myself on the back. Like, this is solid truth. Right? If you know, if you know much about the scriptures at all, and you've read the scriptures much for yourself at all, you can see that like this is an incredibly biblical, Christ-honoring mindset to have. That whatever is necessary, glory to Christ. No matter what the cost, I will glorify God. You can see that if you know the Bible. And I'm sure that many of you here, um, like, like me, are probably feeling conviction about this right now. Because our lives don't always match up with the mentality that Scripture tells us to have. I, I, I know I can't, be, I can't be alone on this. I also say this, some of you are feeling conviction because there are a lot of people who profess to know Christ and their lives don't show even a smidgen of this mentality. 
which again means you really need to reconsider whether or not you have actual faith in Jesus. If you could care less about the glory of Christ, if you could care less about his commands. But again, we feel conviction because our lives don't match up with this mentality perfectly all the time. Right? But, but the Bible tells us, and Jesus tells us, that we must be willing to die for the glory of Christ if necessary. But here's what kind of struck me as something uh, th- this week. It, it, it pierced my heart. The Bible tells us that we must be willing to die for Christ, but often we aren't even willing to live for Jesus. Right? Like, like, like let's be honest. The Bible says, be prepared to die for Christ, and I know men who, are, who won't give up porn for Christ. Who won't give up anger for Jesus. Who won't give up a sinful relationship with an unbeliever. And at the same time, I know people who won't forgive for Jesus who won't be generous for Jesus, who won't proclaim the gospel to the unbelieving people around them, who won't serve others for the glory of Jesus. And I'm being straight with you. I'm not pointing the finger at anyone in here or trying to be like a a, a Pharisee up here saying that like, I am nailing all of these things. That is not what I'm I'm trying to say. I'm, I'm not living perfectly in line with the mentality that we're supposed to have. God actually beat me over the head really, really, really hard Thursday and Friday um, because I've not been willing to let go of bitterness towards certain people for the glory of Christ. So, like, I don't want you guys to get the wrong idea and think, like, I'm, I'm right there with you, man. Like, I'm in the mix. I'm a sinner. I, I, I have to cling to the righteousness of Christ every day because I have none. But think about that. The Bible says we have to be willing to die, and often we aren't willing to live for Jesus. And an unwillingness to live for Jesus is an unacceptable, lukewarm Christianity that just lip service to Christ, but it's not genuine faith that saves. So I just want to say this to you guys, if and when, right? I should say when, not if, because we're all sinners and we all fail every day. When we see that this is us, that our lives are not lining up with, I will do anything for the glory of Christ, that I will live for Christ, we must repent. It means turn from your sin and turn towards Christ. Repenting also means to throw ourselves on God's mercy that is found through faith in Christ. So repent. Confess your sin to God. Con- confess that you've not been living for Him in the way that you ought to. And throw yourself on His mercy, and then push on, because the Bible says if we confess our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us. And that's a huge hope that we have. Uh, but in light of Jesus' Lordship, and, and his grace given to us, and Paul's example of being willing to suffer, right? And, and here's where kind of like all this stuff is coming to a head, right? So we've tried to talk about, you know, the doctrine of the lordship of Christ, um, Paul's godly example, um, the gospel, right, that, that, that God that, uh, has revealed to us by his Holy Spirit, how bad we are and how good he is and how much we need him, right? All this is coming to a head now because doctrine is supposed to have a, an effect on our lives, and if it doesn't, then it's just cold, dead theology that doesn't help anybody. Right? So this has to pierce our hearts. So in light of that, just a, f- a few questions for application um, of these things. One, what is the Lord Jesus calling you to do? He, he called Paul to Jerusalem. He called Paul to the ministry of, of being a, a, a church planner and being a pastor. What is Jesus calling you to do? Right? Now for this first one, it's kind of a trick question. Right, because I know some of you guys are thinking, like, should I be a preacher? Like, some of you guys are, should I be a missionary? We'll get to that one. Um, what I'm getting at with this one is Jesus calls us all to general things, right? Like, there are general commands given to all believers, right? That we are to um, live a holy life, which just means we're, we're trying to not allow ourselves to be corrupted by our own desires, not allowing ourselves to be corrupted by the world, um, to 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 go out and, and help other people to, to do the best that we can to, to keep away from sin. That's what holiness means. Jesus calls us to holiness. He calls us to evangelism, which means proclaiming his lordship and salvation through faith in him. He calls us to that. He calls us to prayer, to be in communion with God. He calls us to fellowship with other believers that we should hold one another accountable. He calls us to studying the scripture, meditating on God's law day and night. He calls us to generosity towards others. He calls us to hospitality towards others, which just means to treat an outsider like an insider. Um, he, he calls us to love everybody, 
He calls us to forgive those who hurt us, right? All those kinds of things. I'm sorry, like, we could do that forever. Like, we could just keep going through all the commands of Jesus. Um, But in light of all of the general things that Jesus calls us to, that's not an exhaustive list. Here's a question that I have. It's like a follow-up question. What is Jesus calling you to do? Are you ignoring his call? Rather, I I would lay this before you. (laughs) What call are you ignoring? (laughs) Because no one is knocking, like just that short list I made, no one in this building is knocking all those things out. Like no one is like on a hundred for all those things all day, every day. So what needs to change? What general call of Jesus are you ignoring? Second question. What is Jesus specifically calling you to? Specifically, so we talked about the general things. What is he specifically calling you to do, right? What, uh, what are, like some churchy words for this? Like what, what ministry or vocation or like mission field or whatever? What is he specifically calling you to do, right? Like, like a teaching position, children's ministry, right? Like, like service, like serving the community, um, being a missionary, which sometimes people scoff at, but that, like that's a legitimate calling on someone's life. Is he calling you to things like that? Like, what, what specific thing is Jesus calling you to? All right, so, in, in, I keep trying to clarify with more questions. <laughs> like, in, in what way is the Lord pushing you to serve others and glorify his name? What do you feel compelled towards? Just like Paul felt compelled to go to Jerusalem. What do you feel compelled to do? Granted, if you ever feel compelled to do anything that violates what the Scripture says is sin, um, that's not the Holy Spirit telling you to do that. I just want to preface all that, right? But what do you feel compelled to do? I just want to make a, a side note for this, too. <laughs> if you're kind of curious, well, I don't really know what God's calling me to do, like, specifically. Wherever you are right now, right, wherever you're at in life, God has placed you where you are to glorify Him. Whether that's your workplace or, or at home or at like school or, or whatever, that, wherever you find yourself, God has placed you there intentionally. We believe in the sovereignty of God. He's put you there. Glorify Him there while you're still trying to figure out, okay, is this actually where I'm supposed to be or am I supposed to do, be doing something else? Keep that in mind. Just a little side note on that. But I think some, some solid ways to try to find out, and I'm not saying these are foolproof. Ask yourself these questions. What pricks your heart? Right? Like what, what breaks you? to see in the world around you? What needs do you see in the community? What needs do you see in the church? And then uh, another question, what are you good at? <laughs> right? What are you good at? What do you have a natural aptitude for? Like, how has God gifted you naturally? And another one, what opportunities has God given you right now? Right? What doors have been opened? To sound like a big old cliche. I'm sorry, everything has turned into a cliche. Um, and I say this too, no one is too young or too old. No one is too young or, or too old. You're, you're not too young to begin. You're not too old to start. I know sometimes we think those kinds of things. And the reason why I can say that is God has good works prepared for all to do, according to Ephesians chapter 2. Not only did he predestine our salvation, but he predestined the good works that we were to carry out. So no one's too young or too old. Like That, that doesn't fly in Christianity. Right, from a seven-year-old to a 70-year-old, everyone has good works that God's prepared for them. All right, so keeping those things in mind. This is, this is the big question, the third one. This is the big one. Are you willing to go? Are you willing to, to do whatever it is that God has called you to do? Whether it's a general thing, a general call to a Christian life, or whether it's a specific call to some kind of ministry. Are you willing to go? Are you willing to sacrifice? Are you ready to serve? Are you ready to give up things? Are you ready to begin things for the glory of Jesus? That's the big question. We look at Jesus. Jesus Christ was willing to go and die in Jerusalem for the glory of the Father. We look at Paul. He was willing to die for Jesus' name. So the question is, are you willing No matter what the cost, are you willing? Will you go? Will you do? Paul had been ready. Paul had been ready to die since he encountered the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. 
If you read Acts chapter 9, you'll get, you'll get this whole story. Paul hated Jesus. He sinned against Jesus. He persecuted Christians, right, who are the body of Christ. So he sins against Christ in killing Christians. He blasphemed Jesus. He loved his sin. And then on that road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus reached down to Paul and claimed him as his own. The risen Lord Jesus Christ opened Paul's eyes to his sin, knocked him off his horse and said, You are mine now. I am your Lord now. I forgive you for your sin. Follow me. In the midst of his sin, Jesus Christ claimed Paul as his own and says, I am your Lord now. And he bestowed mercy and love and and forgiveness all on Paul the sinner. And then Paul begins to think, for all that Christ has done for me, that I sinned against him, that I loved my wickedness, that I blasphemed his name, that I lived my life for myself, for all of that Christ has done to forgive me and call me his own, And bring me out of of where I was. How could I not be willing to do anything for him? I genuinely think that's what Paul starts to think. He has shown me unmerited love and favor and saved me. Surely he is Lord. And I will follow him and him alone. Paul was ready since that experience. Since that moment when the Lord Jesus called him as his own. If you're a Christian, Jesus has done this for you. Whether you realize it or not, you were the same as Paul. Maybe you didn't kill anybody, but your heart was just as wicked. Your heart was just as blasphemous. Jesus chose you. If you're a Christian, he reached down from his throne and said, this one is mine. He chose you before you were born. He saved you. He bought you back from the judgment of God on the cross. Jesus did all of these things for you. How could we then not truly declare with our lives that Jesus is Lord? How how could we refuse Him anything? How could we be unwilling? How could we let anything stand in our way? If If we look at Paul's example... He let nothing stand in his way. Not his friends, not his family, not his culture, not comfort, not anything. He says, I will sell all for the glory of Christ because of what he has done for me. The last thing that we we saw in this passage is that when the believers saw that Paul was determined to go to Jerusalem... And that he didn't care what happened to him because he wanted to do this for the name of Jesus. The Bible says they prayed, the will of the Lord be done. That doesn't mean that the will of the Lord was not going to happen if they didn't pray that. Right? Paul knew the sovereignty of God. The early church knew the sovereignty of God. What I mean by that is they knew God's will will be accomplished no matter what. But whenever they commit Paul's life to the will of the Lord and they say, the will of the Lord be done... What they're saying, and Paul is saying in unison with them, is that they submit to the will of the Lord Jesus. They trust the will of the Lord Jesus. Where Christ leads, Paul is saying, where you lead, I will follow. Wherever the place, whatever the job, whatever the cost, for your glory, I will go. That has to become our mentality in prayer. Thy will be done, not mine. That has to become our mentality. That has to become how we view everything. The will of the Lord be done, not mine. There's a there's a hymn that uh, that I want to I want to tell you guys about just real quick. Um, It was written in like I think the late 18th century um, by a missionary who who witnessed a man um, be martyred for the faith um, in India. Uh, if, I, if I remember rightly, I believe it was in India. And uh, the, the chief of this tribe, or however they have things worked out there, goes to this man and they say, like, we want you to renounce your faith and, and come back to the old religion. And he says, 
I've decided to follow Jesus. I, I won't. And, and, they, and they go to him, they threaten him, and then eventually they, they murder the man's wife, who is also a Christian. And they told him to renounce his faith and stop following Jesus. And he says, though none go with me, I still will follow Jesus. And they eventually killed the man. And then through this man's faithfulness, the, the chieftain of that tribe actually converted to Christianity. Um, and the, the hymn that was written it became real popular in the 1950s through Billy Graham. So you, a lot of you guys might know this one. But this is, for what we've talked about, this song is so fitting. It says, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow my cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. And by God's grace, not our own power, not our own will, not our own striving, but by the grace of God, that will be our song too. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. You sent your son to redeem us and buy us back from our sin. Something that we could never do. You've set us free from sin. In the midst of our wickedness, you've you've called us your own. God, please make that truth resonate with us. Father, let us be people who are willing to sell off at the gospel and go wherever you tell us, wherever you lead us, no matter what the cost. That was Jesus' mentality in the Garden of Gethsemane. God, give us that kind of a spirit. Give us that kind of a disposition. Holy Spirit, work in us to, to accomplish that purpose. Father, if there's, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit and open their eyes. Show them the beauty of Christ in the gospel. Save them. Let them be awakened to find Christ desirable so that they too would choose to follow Christ. God, just let us live in ways that give you honor and glory. Thank you for everything you've done. But above all, thank you so much for sending our Redeemer to buy us back from your wrath. In Jesus' name, amen.